0: Let 's pray, Lord, thank you so much for today, God, and uh, thank you for an opportunity to be able to open your word and look at your scriptures and, and Lord, I pray that as we see them and as we talk about eternal life and as we consider what eternal life is and, and how it affects us that um, we 'll see that we have eternal life now and that we would want to start living in light of that that we'd want to if we have things that need to change in our life that we would change now and that we would start. Now, responding in faith to Christ, Lord, I pray that uh, I pray that you would help me speak clearly this morning, and Holy Spirit, that you would, as I speak, use my words to change me <laughs> and everyone here, and that as we leave here, we would be would be more certain in our belief in Christ, and that we would be more certain in our mission while we're here on earth. God, I love you, and I, I thank you for my friends here. Pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so um, we're in 1 John five, starting in verse six, and we're going to be in six through thirteen. So let me let me read the text to you, and then we'll we'll go through it. And as we're going through it, just kinda let me kind of give you a little heads up. Um, this is this is kind of how it's going to work today. Is in the very beginning, I'm just going to kind of explain to you one of the things that's going on uh, as far as a textual variant. There's a problem in the copying and the translating. And it's the biggest one in the New Testament, so I, I feel like we can spend three, four, five minutes on it just so I can explain to you what's going on. I actually will address it later on. Um, after that, we're going to talk about the theme, which is in this, these verses, which you'll see uh, in verse 11. And after we talk about the theme, then we'll talk about what those things, those, that theme and what it looks like and what it means in our life and, and how John explains the theme for us. Um, if you haven't been with us at all, uh, if this is your very first time, we're going through 1 John, and John... Kind of tells us why he's writing after he's been doing it for the whole time in 5:13, which is one of our verses today. in 5:13, he tells us, "I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life." So he is writing this letter to Christians who these Christians need to have um, some assurance in their salvation. And as he's writing this, he um, tells them that you can know, you need to know that you can know that you have a salvation. And as he's written the letter, we've seen that he, he addresses these tests that you can you can judge yourself or see whether you're in the faith, which are love, righteousness, and doctrine. And so if you, you need to be a loving person, you need to have care and affections for people, you need to have the right doctrine, you need to know right things about Jesus, which he addresses because of the Gnostics at the time who had incorrect doctrine about the person of Jesus and who he was. They, they thought he wasn't necessarily um, human. And then lastly, um, you need to have a pattern of wanting to uh, see sin killed in your life. You, need to have a, you can't just have a pattern of just willful, un, you know, unrighteous sin in your life, or these are tests that you can know. And So he, he's writing this to him. Now, he's pretty much ended the tests now. He's ended the test, and as we're going into here, um, he's wanting to help these people see the testimony now that we've given that Jesus is the Son of God is true. Now, that seems like something that you would want to communicate to unbelievers, right? Like, Jesus really is the Son of God. That seems like something that should be communicated to unbelievers. But let's keep in mind the whole time we're going through here that John is writing this to believers, so, John wants believers to make sure they know that Jesus is the Son of God. And as he's doing that, it's going to give them assurance. So, let's read the text. Um, in verse 6, it says, This is he who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. I'm going to explain all this, I promise. Um, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And now he's going to say, There's three. For there are three that testify the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive, he's, he's kind of transitioning there, this, this conditional if, based on what I just said, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, remember the contrast that John loves to do. Here's one. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, talking about God, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us. Eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has, there's another contrast, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. And then 13. I write these things to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now I'm including in 13 in that, and in, in ESV it doesn't include it in the section. But remember, it wasn't written with chapter, you know, breakings and things like that. Is because there's a theme of eternal life going. Look at look at. Um, 10 11 and 12 and 13 again and start noticing john's starting to talk about eternal life he says whoever believes in the name of the son of god has the testimony in himself whoever does not believe god has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that god has borne concerning his son and this is the testimony that god gave us eternal life so we can see he's making a point about the testimony and it involves eternal life which goes all the way back to verse six this is the testimony eternal life and this life this eternal life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So he's talking about eternal life. He's wanting you to see it. And he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So there's a big theme here of eternal life. So... Um, The big thing for us here in in, in these texts is eternal life and what that looks like and how that means. Before we jump into that and we start looking at some of that, I do want to explain the the textual variant to you. Um, And we'll have both of them up here on the screen. Um, And you'll see the textual variant just means that as things were starting to be, as they were written, uh, copies were made, and as they were copied and as they were copied, someone decided to put something extra in there. And so when they look at the two texts, there's a variant there's, there's a difference in these two texts as they're looking at the copies. And the biggest one, um, probably in the Bible, is in 1 John 5, and you'll see the difference here um, in the ESV, and the, you'll see it mainly in the ESV, um, NIV, New American Standard versus King James, New King James. All right? Go ahead and put it up for me. Um, this is what ESV says, and you'll see the underlining part there in the KJV is the addition. It says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. We just read that. Now notice the difference here in King James. For there are three that bear record. And then he adds, In heaven, the Father, the Word, that's the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth. And then he goes back to, The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. So if we read it without the underline, it would sound just like the ESV. For there are three that bear record, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. So you can see that there's an obvious addition so you have to say all right what's going on there and why is that there and and what's going on all right let me explain to you so you don't freak out and think that the bible is is like inaccurate and we can't trust it or anything like that all right as i said when writers and this i'm, I'm going to spend a whole lot of time but there is a point i promise there is a point of why i even want to bring this up um it is the biggest textual variant. You know, some people can disagree about Mark 16. Mark 16, where it's, they're, they're, they're handling snakes and drinking drinking poison. You're like, ah, I don't know if that's in there. There's a little note that says, maybe this is in there. And John 8, the woman caught in adultery. Some people say, I don't think this is in there. And there's a lot of debate, but there's still a good bit who will go back and forth on that. With this, there's virtually no one. Like... No one believes that John wrote this. All right, this is what's going on. So as they're writing, they're writing these things, and the, the, the writers like John and Paul and these guys, they send their letters out to these cities, and these cities think they're so awesome, they'll copy them and send them to another city. And send, so the letters that these apostles are writing are kind of circulating around. Well, in order to do that, they have to make copies. They, have to, they, they, don't, have, well, we, they don't have like copy machines where you can just slide it in there and hit start. Um, so people are actually writing these things very, very meticulously. Um, and then persecution comes in some of these regions. And so as persecution comes, they, they disperse themselves even into further regions. Um, and so whenever they did that, Greek traditions, Greek manuscripts would kind of arise out of all these regions. And so, you know, what we want to do is, is in 2010, go back to these Greek tradi- or these traditions where Greek manuscripts were being copied and find the, the earliest manuscripts that seem to be the most accurate. And from that, we take and we, we have our New Testament. All right. So they kept copying the letters, and persecution would happen, and they, they were going around. Well, eventually, language changed as well as they're copying. And sometime between 400 and 800, they started copying and writing the, the manuscripts in Latin. So they're writing these manuscripts in Latin. Um, and then eventually, one of the Latin scribes added this little this little extra part here that we see. Well, it's not up there anymore. Added this part, which it says, the three that bear witness in heaven, the spirit water, I'm sorry, the... the the Father, the Word, and the, and the Holy Ghost. Somebody added that in Latin. And it, it, it found itself into, as they started collecting the Bible, it found itself in the letter of 1 John, in the Vulgate, which is the Latin version of the Bible. Well, um, at, fast forward to about 1500, there's a guy named Erasmus. And Erasmus um, was writing the, uh, the New Testament into the Vulgate, kind of editing and, and making the Vulgate updated. And he's looking at the Greek manuscripts. And he looks at First John five, and he's looking at the Greek manuscripts. And he he, as he writes the Vulgate, sees that this this little part about the the bearing witness in heaven, the the Father, the Word, and the, and the Spirit, um, isn't in there. And so he just eliminates it from the Vulgate, from this Gr- Latin version of the Bible. He just takes it out, and he and he just keeps going. Well, mind you, it's been in the Latin Vulgate Bible from about eight hundred to fifteen hundred, so seven hundred years it has been in there. Lots of tradition. Remember. You know, back in the Middle Ages, tradition was a big deal because the Catholic Church ruled and reigned and there wasn't a whole lot of people that read their Bibles on their own. The priests kind of communicated the Word of God to them. And so the people, when, when Erasmus takes it out, the people flip out. 700 years this section has been in the Bible and they just freak out. They're like, what are you doing? You're changing the Word of God. And, and he's like, it's not even in the Greek. Like this, it's so clear that it's not supposed to be there, and they're like, "No, you, you're changing God's word. You can't do that." And he goes, "I'll tell you what. If you can produce me one Greek manuscript that it's in there, then I'll put it in there. But otherwise, it's not supposed to be in there." Well, one was produced for him. You know, oh, we found one. You know, so, so they write it in there. So somebody puts it in there old Othaeos, and and they, they, he says he gets it, and he he even he adds it because he's a man of his word. Um, he adds it, but he he even says, "I don't think this is real." I don't think it's real, but I'm going to put it in there anyway because I'm going to keep my word. But now, the evidence, um, as we're kind of looking back from 2010, looking at these, these things, and we see there's only four manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, that have this. You know, Usually when you're looking at Greek manuscripts, it's thousands. That there's this evidence that these things are real whenever you're looking at Matthew and Mark and whatever. But here there's only four, which is not so many um, at all. And so the, the overwhelming evidence is that if you're looking at King James or non King James, uh, or New King James, I should say, um, None. whenever you look at it, um, the overwhelming evidence is that John the Apostle did not write this part. He did not write that extra little section that we saw underlined. Um, <clears throat> what's the big deal, Fudd? Why did you just spend that time? All right, not really anything. Th- there's no real big deal, um, but there's a little bit. Here's the deal. Um, you don't want to take that section and try to prove the Trinity. Because John didn't write it. All right? John didn't write it. So we don't want to say, look, um, it's obvious there's a trinity. It says it right here in 1 John 5. As a matter of fact, you don't even need to use any other section but that to prove the trinity. If you look at verse 6, it says Jesus Christ. If you look at verse, the end of verse 6, it says the Spirit. And if you go up to testimony um, in, in verse 9, it says we received the testimony of God. So the Trinity is actually right there in those verse, in those very verses anyway. So you don't need to use those verses. Um, the, the, the new addition to try to prove the Trinity. Now, I think there's a reason why the scribe added that part, which I'm going to get to later. I think there's a reason why he added it. And, you know, I could be wrong. But that's, that's my opinion. Now... Um, that's that. We're going to move into this, this theme of eternal life. And we're going to come back to why I said all that in just in this a little bit. All right. The theme here in this text seems to be eternal life. Now, what I want to do now is help you see, because there's lots of um, ways that the Bible kind of communicates or um, uses... he pictures or portraits or motifs or whatever you want to use when, he wants to, when God wants to communicate the gospel or give us a good understanding of what the gospel is. Sometimes he uses the analogy of Jesus as the head of the church. Sometimes he uses the husband and wife. Here he just he talks about the gospel being eternal life. And there is just a ton of verses that talk about giving us eternal life. That life doesn't end for us. That the only person that's eternal is God. And yet we're told to have eternal life life. That's a pretty big deal. So I want to read you now some text from, and there's a lot, so, but it's good. I mean, this is, Je- this is God's word here. So this, is, this is the best part of the sermon because all I'm going to do is not give you any of my words, but all of God's words. All right. So I'm going to give you a, uh, some, Bi- some Bible verses here where we're going to see this theme of eternal life that's kind of been plotted along in the entire Bible and why the eternal life is such a big deal as we're going into 1 John 5. We're looking in Genesis chapter two first. Genesis chapter two, in um, verse seven. Genesis chapter two, verse seven. This is what it says. Um, then the God, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed his no, and breathed and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So we can see God is already giving life to man by literally breathing in. Verse eight says, and the Lord planted a. Gu- Blended a garden in Eden in the east, and he put the man in whom he had formed. And then verse nine, which should be on the screen, verse nine says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every plant every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then now we see a tree. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we can even see that he breathes life into people. That's how we have life. And that he puts a tree of the knowledge of life. Um, in there, So even in Genesis, in the very beginning, this idea of life and, and eternal life is, is presented. Now let's look at John. John chapter 1, verse 4. As John's writing his gospel, he, he really kind of hammers down this idea of eternal life. And this is what he says in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 4. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So in Christ was life, and this life was the light of men. The fact that Jesus has Life, eternal life, that's, that's bright, shining truth for us. It is the light for us. In John 3, verses 14 through 16, some of the most popular verses in the Bible, it says, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The promise that we would all get to live eternally with God. John 4, um, he's speaking with the woman at the well. In verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So he continues the theme of eternal life. Here's another one, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. John five thirty nine. as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, trying to help them see that you're, you're searching the scriptures for life, but it's me. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John 6:35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Remember, these are portraits of the gospel. And this, this one one that we're narrowing down on, that we're wanting to see, it's like a diamond. The gospel's a diamond. And you can turn it all around, and there's all kinds of facets to see and be um, enamored by and drawn into the gospel. And the one that we're being drawn into today is this idea that we have eternal life. John 10, 10, and 11. The thief comes to kill, to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 14, 6. And Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a, there's a, there's a portrait here for us as Christians that now that we are followers of Christ, we have life. You feel like your life doesn't count. You feel like it, it's meaningless. You feel like your life just kind of... He's not, that's not true. You have life. There's another one. John 17. This is a great one. This is Jesus praying before he's going to be killed. This is him praying in the garden. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and, Christ, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, Paul also has ideas of eternal life. In, John, in Romans six twenty-two through 23 he says, But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification, and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. First Timothy six twelve, for the good fight of faith, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Titus three, five through seven. This is a great verse. Whenever you want to explain the gospel to someone, he saved us, not because of his works done by done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then as John told us in the very beginning of this letter, in 1 John 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, that's Jesus, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So there's this massive theme running through the New Testament regarding eternal life so as we're looking at this, um, what we want to see here is what, why is he wanting to key in on eternal life and what's that supposed to do for us? How's that supposed to spur us on in loving good deeds and, and living a life of worship based on the gospel, all right? Look at verse 6, and this is where we start getting some interesting stuff. And it says, this is he who came by water and blood, talking about Jesus. You notice that in verse 6, wh- whoever... Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm reading verse 5. Who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is He, talking about Jesus, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Now, we need to know what water and blood mean here. And there's there's a lot of different uh, thoughts and a lot of different ideas and a lot of different commentators go a lot of different ways. I'm going to explain them. Um, the, tell you the one I think is right. Um, the first one is in John 19. Um, if... If you recall, after Jesus was, well, Jesus was crucified and he had died and then they came up with a spear and they kind of stabbed him and it says that water and blood came out right there. Um, and so some people say that this is talking about the water and blood is the same as John 19. Um, Mark Triscoll said this is kind of equivalent to playing Where's Waldo with the Bible. <laughs> you just say, well, here's, here's water and blood. Let's look anywhere else. And so I thought it was kind of funny, but no one else did. All right. So um, um, I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's what he's doing. Um. Because here it says, "This is He who came by water and blood," um, and right there it's saying that the water and blood came through Jesus. And this is saying that it came by water. Jesus came by water and blood. So I don't think that's it. Some people um, will say that this water and blood, and this is actually mostly the reformers, Luther and Calvin, say this. And I know this is going to astonish some of y'all. I disagree with Calvin here. Um, but anyway, he says uh, they say, "Well, this is actually the sacraments." This is the sacraments. The water is baptism and the the blood is the Lord's Supper. Um, And so when he says he came by water and blood, he came by baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, Water does signify baptism, but blood doesn't signify Lord's Supper, but is an element of the Lord's Supper. So I don't think that that's what is going on here. I think there's something different. Um, And a lot of commentators Kind of go a lot of places, but a lot of commentators I read went this third way, which I think is actually more more right. Uh, This is what it says. Uh, We've got to remember, John is writing to address Gnostics. And one of the views that the Gnostics had is that um, there was this man Jesus that kind of lived. And at the baptism, at his actual baptism, then that's whenever the divinity kind of descended onto this man, Jesus. And so at age 33, he was the God-man. And he lived in his ministry. And then right before he was going to be killed, this divinity kind of ascended off of him. And he just died as, as Jesus the man again, not Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Um, so he's addressing that because the Gnostics believe that. And so this is what I think he's saying here. This is he who came by, by water and by blood. By water is Jesus' baptism. This is he who came by water, Jesus' baptism when John the Baptist did it, and by blood, that's Jesus' cross. And he's trying to make them see, um, yes, absolutely, Jesus was baptized, and the, the Holy Spirit showed up in God the Father, but that wasn't whenever he became divinity. So look what he says, not by the water only. Not by the, so it's not just the baptism that shows that or testifies that Jesus is the Christ as he addresses the Gnostics, but he says not by the water only but by the water and the blood so it's not just his baptism it's also his cross that testifies it, the divinity didn't ascend off of him before the cross so both of these his baptism and his cross are testifying that jesus is the christ and then he says this and the spirit is the one who testifies so now he's telling us the holy spirit himself testifies now this word testify is going to start being really important here um It shows up in this set of verses between 6 through 11. This word testify shows up either as a verb or as a noun or even as a participle ten different times. So John is really wanting us to understand testify. Testify um, is is key. It translates in testimony in some other verses. Um, But this word testify is key. And now he's saying not only do water and blood testify, but the Holy Spirit himself. And it is the Spirit who testifies because... Why is the Spirit who tes- the one who testifies? Because the Spirit is truth. So the Holy Spirit always tells the truth. And then he says, interesting in verse 7, for there are three that testify. In verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood. Now if you remember, if you've read, read the Bible and you've spent some time in the Bible, you'll know that it always says that the, the testimony must be affirmed by two or three witnesses. It says that in the New Testament. It says that in the Old Testament. And so John knows that in the Semitic mind that... Um, testimony needs to be validated by two or three witnesses so he is producing three witnesses the spirit the water and the blood jesus's baptism jesus's cross and the holy spirit who always tells the truth all three of these are testifying that jesus is the christ he is 100% human and 100% God. He is the God-man. And Gnostics, you're incorrect. He's not just appearing to be, kind of be uh, divinity, but wasn't really human. You're, you're incorrect. So you have to believe, you have to have this true understanding that Jesus is the Christ. You have to know who he is. Jesus, the testimony has been given to us. And here's what I think happens with the textual variant. I think that the, the writer, this this Latin writer, um, sees this and he's reading this and this is I don't know if this is true. Right? I don't know, but that's what I think is going on here. The writer looks at this and he says, All right, John's testifying to these Gnostics that this is absolutely true, and he uses three testimonies the Jesus' baptism, the water, Jesus' cross, the blood, and the spirit. And as you look at that, you're like, Why in the world is the Holy Spirit God, like on equal footing with things that aren't God? Baptism and cross like, wow, that's, that seems like, if I look at that, that seems like it's kind of maybe diminishing a little bit of the authority of the Holy Spirit because, you know, God is the Holy Spirit. He's way up here. And then you've got, you know, baptism and cross, which are majorly important. They're huge redemptive um, reflections to us. But I think the writer looks at that and he goes, oh, well, I certainly don't want to make them think that the Holy Spirit is kind of less than authority. So what I'm going to do, and it's just my opinion, is that I'm going to say, There are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And whenever I do that, they're going to see, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit is absolutely put in supreme authority in this text with Father and Son. And that's just going to back up this over here to say, the Holy Spirit can be there with the baptism and with the cross. All right, that's just my opinion. But I think that's what's going on here. And then he says, "Um, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree... There, these three agree so we have this idea now remember as we get on in the text he's talking about eternal life so here's the, what here's what i want you to see in verses six through eight that number one first thing redemptive reminders of the life that we have in christ are baptism the cross and the holy spirit so there are reminders given to us of eternal life remember the theme here is eternal life Eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. And John's saying there are some redemptive reminders reminding of this eternal life, always. One is the baptism. This is namely Jesus' baptism, not just our baptism. Yeah, baptism always reminds us of eternal life because we, we go down and we count Jesus' death at ours and we come up and we count that Jesus' resurrection is our life now given to us to walk in, in newness of Him. But this is His baptism where the Father comes down and says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased testifying that jesus is god's son that's a redemptive reminder to us that shows us all right something's going on here that we can trust this the next one is his cross the only person who could die on the cross to save us from our sins is god another redemptive reminder that gives us eternal life because god sent god to come die for us and then finally the holy spirit as he says right here the holy spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth he always tells the truth, and he only testifies concerning the true things about Jesus. All right, so that's the first one. Now, um, I know that was kind of a lot, but I think you're right with me. Y'all seem to be like straight with me the whole time there. All right, um, let's go to verse nine. Verse nine, and John's going—he's making a little a little bit of an argument here in verse nine. The, the idea is, as you walk around um, through life, men are going to men are going to make claims to you all the time. They're going to make tr- statements to you and most of the time when well not most of the time but time during life when men make statements to you you believe them you believe their testimony they make a statement to you they say something to you and you believe it so he's 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 making an argument here in verse 9 he says if we receive the testimony of men which we do we will receive the test not all men i mean people that are just blatant liars we don't receive testimony. but on the whole we will receive the testimony of men and he's saying he's making an argument if you'll do that well the testimony of God is greater. If you receive the testimony of men, you absolutely re- should receive the testimony of God, because He's God. And the Holy Spirit, as we saw, is testifying to you that Jesus is the Christ, the man and God. And He says, If you receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony, wow, this is amazing, you have the testimony in yourself now. The Holy Spirit's testifying that He's the Son. And if you would believe, if you would believe, you have that testimony of God now in you. Now, I will admit, as we're looking here at the beginning of 10, 10a, that this is very subjective. This is referring to an inward feeling that we have regarding the testimony of jesus in us it says if you would believe in the name in the son of god you have the testimony of god in you all right so it's kind of like this you know when you wake up in the morning and you come downstairs or you wake up in your apartment and your roommate or your wife or whatever um your sister your brother says to you it's freezing outside and you're like ah, i think i'm gonna be okay i'm gonna go short sleeves Nah, dude it's freezing And you're like, "I don't think so." And you're not ever going to believe that. You trust me, just put on heavy clothes. I, this happens with my girls all the time. I want to wear short sleeves or a dress. It's cold. You can't do that. I until they open up the door or I I'm kind of hard-headed too. Till open up the door and I kind of stick my arm outside. Um, and you have to be careful. It, you stick your arm outside. I should have said that. So, um, you're like, "Wow, it's it's cold." It is cold. I, I'm going to believe that. So you walk back over and you have to you, uh, you get dressed accordingly. No matter how many times people tell you, no matter, hey, you've got to believe me, it's freezing outside. It's cold, it's cold, it's cold. Until you like stick your arm out of the window or the door, you're not going to believe it. Well, it's just like that. Um, that's what John is saying here. We can tell you... Over, if you don't know Christ, I can tell you over and over and over again from my subjective experience that Christ is all fulfilling. Christ is all surpassing. That knowing Him is the absolute greatest thing that's ever happened to me and that could happen to you. And some of you, no matter how many times I just keep telling you my subjective experience, you're not going to believe me until you stick your hand out of the window and feel that subjectively yourself. Whether you view it on someone else and how Christ is working and how their life just becomes amazing or in your own experience, that you have to just have. You're you're kind of hard-headed. It just takes a little bit of time for you to start feeling and subjectively knowing that this life that God is offering you is absolutely the best life that you could ever have. And I'm not trying to say like the Joel Osteen, your best life now. I'm saying that Christ has given you eternal life. Eternal life. That's the key that he's saying here. And you can have this testimony in you. And this is very much a subjective feeling, which is okay. It's okay. Um, In the book Church Planner, Darren Patrick says, the gospel is both objective and subjective. It's both historical and experiential. So we must preach the gospel. We must proclaim both the objective realities, that there was a man who was... Also God who died 2,000 years ago for us on our behalf. God came and died. We need to preach and teach these true objective realities whenever we talk about the gospel. But there is this subjective feeling where we say, I have the testimony in me. And I I can't explain it. You you have to experience. And we have to preach both of these things to this lost and dying world. But here's one key. And this, this makes me a little upset sometimes. Whenever we think about with our good intentions... We, most of the time, it's good intentions. Whenever we preach the gospel to some, some people, um, we're well-intended to try to leave out some of the things. When we, when we don't talk about sin, when we don't talk about blood, when we don't talk about repentance, when we don't talk about wrath being honest, then I don't know what we're talking about. If we don't talk about those things in the gospel, when we leave those things out, because we, we don't want it to be offensive, we want it to be kind of a little more palatable... When we start talking about the gospel, as just making things better or just making your life happy and, you know, just ask Jesus to be your savior without talking about sin, without talking about repentance, without talking about God's wrath coming down on you. We start talking about silly things about the gospel. We, we compare God to a lifeguard or we say the gospel according to big red chewing gum. And that's true. I've heard that. We start talking about weird, silly things rather than just going back to the Bible and saying, this is the gospel. You have to believe that you are a sinner and God's wrath rests on you. Because in the end, the gospel is objective, but it is subjective. And sometimes it's offensive. But we have to let God be the the person that saves and let Him be the one that's going to decide. But we have this... Internal testimony inside of us, which we have to share, so while we 're talking about the truths of the Bible, while we 're talking about the fact that Jesus died, we always can give our eternal internal testimony that 's bearing witness to us that God has put inside of us, and this is what 's going on in me, and i 'm telling you it 's the best thing in the world, but some people just need to see experientially, and that 's okay. He is the most amazing reality in the world. Now, how big of a deal is unbelief then? How big a deal is unbelief? We see in 10a, whoever believes in the name of the Son of God has the testimony in himself. John is the master of contrast. Look what he does in B. Whoever does not believe God has made him, God, a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. John Stott said, unbelief... Is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him. Now, here's the key, which I've said in the very beginning this letter is written to believers. This letter is written to believers. I wrote these things so that you may know that you can believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So this belief that's being addressed is not a first one-time justification belief and then bang, I believe and now I'm good and that's it. This belief that's being addressed is a, an initial belief and also an ongoing belief in Jesus. The ongoing nature of our belief, not just an initial justification belief, is the thing that gives us assurance. So John is addressing here that we must not just have an initial belief, but an ongoing belief in that. And if we don't, then we're saying God's a liar. That's a huge deal. It's not just a misfortune, but a sin to be deplored. So continued belief is something that we have to continue to have. And he tells us the testimony now in verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us. Eternal Life. So let's, let's look at uh, 9 through 12. Well, let me read verse 11. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. So if you have Jesus, you have life. If you don't, look what he says. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So here's the second thing regarding, the second truth regarding eternal life. Belief in the Son of God is is essential for eternal life. And I should have written ongoing. Ongoing belief in the Son of God is essential for eternal life. Eternal life is the very essence of salvation. Eternal life is the very life of God. Whenever He promises you eternal life, it's just it should blow your mind because you are temporal. You are created. You, not, you are not created to be, right now because you're sinful, eternal. And He's promising you and me Because we die, eternal life. And that's just like, wait a second, all right? I am finite, and he's promising me life that continues on after I die. This is amazing. So, belief in the Son of God is essential for eternal life. Since God is eternal, and we have Christ in us, and we will be with him eternally, we now have eternal life. We have the life of God. Amazing. Now, we're not going to be God. I'm not saying you're going to turn into deity, but you do have the life of God. This is pretty amazing. If you have the Son, then you have life. Now, verse 13. As I said, he's writing this to believers. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. Philippians 2 says this to us. Um, it's written to believers, and this is what he says. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul is telling us in this verse in Philippians two, you need to work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation. It's not some kind of works based righteousness thing that he's saying. You need to work out your salvation. Meaning, Yes, God has promised us, and in Philippians one six, he who began a good work and you will can carry it on will bring it to completion. Bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. Yes, if you are justified, you will be sanctified. But that doesn't eliminate our responsibility. We have to work out our salvation. We have to pursue salvation by ourselves, along with the help of God. It's a continued effort, sanctification. So, after he tells us that we're supposed to work, then he reminds us in 13, oh yeah, by the way, God helps you. <laughs> for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. So this letter in 1 John is written that you may know you have eternal life, but you have to still pursue this yourself. You have to continue to strive for sanctification in your life. So the apostle is writing these things. This is what what John Calvin said, kind of commenting on this verse 13. He said, The apostle wrote these things, that is, that eternal life is to be sought nowhere else but in Christ in order that they who were believers might might. Those who were believers already might believe. That is, make progress in believing. So my goal each week here is to commend to you the grace of Christ. Every week I want to commend to you the grace of Christ so that you will be so satisfied in Him that you will seek nothing else. Now, here's, here's the, the, the biggest key. All right? We've talked about 1 John for a while, and I'm kind of setting you up here for this final thing. I'm saying you need to pursue um sanctification you need to make sure that you're working on your salvation and it's your responsibility yes god in the end doing it all and we've looked over first john this whole time and i've told you the tests are love the tests are righteousness the tests are doctrine and so i think that what could happen for us all is that we're thinking those are the tests that that means in order to make sure i'm going to be saved i need to focus my my thoughts and my life and my my things on okay well then i need to make sure i'm more loving I need to make sure I have the right doctrines. I need to make sure I'm focusing on my life, that it's not filled with sin, that I'm I'm killing sin in my life. And the object of your faith becomes works. Because Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation. You're thinking, okay, well, I want to make sure I'm saved, so I'm just going to have to study more and make sure I know the right doctrine. I'm just going to have to constantly look at my life and make sure I'm killing sin. I'm just going to have to constantly think about my relationships and make sure I'm loving, because if I, don't, if I don't do those things, then I don't have a right relationship with God. The object of your faith is Jesus. It's not those things, Yes, those things are tests. Yes, you must look at your life and see if those things are in your life. But the object of your faith is always Christ. So what I want to do each week is hold up not, hey, be more loving. I don't want to hold up, know your doctrine. I don't want to hold up, stop sinning. I want to hold up Jesus in front of you and say, here's your righteousness. Here he is. You have eternal life. And let that be the thing that leads you into wanting to living for him. So, to keep us from moving over to a performance mindset, we have to continue to make sure that Christ is our object of faith. So, verse 13 is this. Um, I write these things. Well, let me just read point three. Here's point three. You can know that you have been given eternal life. That's the, that's the third thing regarding eternal life, is that you can know. And the way that you can know is not pursuing the three tests. It's pursuing Jesus and just knowing that those things are going to happen. Just knowing that those things are going to happen as you pursue Christ. That's why he says, whoever believes in the Son of God, not whoever believes in the fact that he makes sure he is more loving and kills sin and knows doctrine. It's continued belief that Jesus is the Christ. And that's how you know. And some days, yeah, you can say, well, I don't feel it today. Your feeling is not dependent upon you being saved. Some days you won't feel it. But do you have belief in Jesus? Yes, you do. You are saved. And that's, I mean, that's, we need to have that for the days that we just blow it and we live terribly. So what we want to do here is hold out to you, Jesus, every week. And you continually believe in Jesus for your salvation. Continually believe. So here's a deal as we go into our time of worship. Um, and, uh, in our time of response. When we read in Revelation about the angels singing, whenever we read in, uh, through the Gospels, when it talks about there's rejoicing in heaven when a sinner comes to, to repentance, the, the interesting thing about that is this. Um, when we worship here, we're not starting worship. Okay? I mean, the band starts playing, but we're certainly not starting worship. Worship is happening right now. Already in heaven, it's continually always happening. So when we worship, we're not starting worship; we are joining worship. It's already going on, so we're joining what's going on in heaven and starting to sing with them and proclaim with them that Jesus is the Christ. Um, let me ask this question, and this might be this is, this totally kind of different for me, I know, but this is this is a little more like it's okay to talk right here. Um, has anyone, at least this week or this month or this year, experienced, and this is just an amen, you don't have to like, yeah, let me give you the this, this scenario. Um, has anyone experienced um, some great things about having eternal life this week or month or year? Have you experienced some glorious realities about eternal life right now, if you're a believer? All right, that, that, was, that, was, that was awesome, y'all are with me. Has, has anybody said, you know what? The fact that Jesus has come into my life and forgiven me for my sin and helped me walk now down a path of righteousness has given me a desire to want to talk about Jesus with my friends. Doesn't make me feel like I'm in a performance mindset. The gospel is that I'm already righteous before him. I'm not having to try, whenever I blow it, I don't like, oh, I stink at everything and Jesus hates me. It's nice to know that you have eternal, here's the key, like eternal life, eternal life is not in heaven waiting on you. You have it now if you're in Christ. Eternal life is beginning now. Is that not a glorious thing to be excited about? Eternal life is now. You have it now. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, where death is your sting? Well, when we die, we're present with the Lord. We have eternal life already happening for us. Well, that's huge, huge um, when we start thinking about worship. When we start thinking about not just corporate worship right now, but the fact that we will go out and live a lifestyle of worship to our neighbors. We have eternal life now. We've been given the gift of eternal life, and we can know based on our continued belief in Him. So this is what we're going to do as we, as we go into our response. Um, we're going to join in with heaven. We're going to join in with heaven in worship. We're going to also take the Lord's Supper so during this song, Cameron's going to come out, and they're going to sing. You can come on out, Cameron. Um, we're going to sing a, uh, a song, and if you want to sing... Please feel free to do that. If you want to remain seated and just think on the words, these words are about Jesus' life, the fact that He came and died for us, the fact that the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, that Jesus came when He died and has bought for us eternal life and talks about the cross and, and elements of the Lord's Supper, His body broken for us, His blood shed for us. So if you want to kind of think on the words and pray and meditate so that after the Lord's Supper you can stand and worship, if you want to sing now, do it. Because right now, this is response time for us. This is the time where we consider what Christ has done for us. So we're going we're gonna to take the Lord's Supper together in response and thanking Him for what He's done for us by, by dying for us on the cross. We're going to stand and we're going to sing and join in with the angels who are already, and, and the heavenly hosts who are already worshiping Jesus. So during the song, think, meditate, take some time, pray. And as the song ends... Um, or even during the song, if you're ready, then you can go, up, come on, go ahead and come up and grab the bread and the juice and just come back to your seat. Or you can go in, there's a table in the back, and um, after the song's over, I'll come up and I'll lead us in a time of Lord's Supper, and then we'll worship through song again. So let me pray, and then we'll go into our time of, of uh, song and communion. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this time of uh, hearing from you, Lord, I know that, um, as I talked um, that it's the Holy Spirit that bears witness with with those people here and their spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one that teaches them, it's not me, and so um, I pray, Lord, that the words that I've spoken, Lord, that you would take them and that you would use them, and the things that I said that were confusing or unhelpful, that you would just erase them from their minds. And that you would help them grab on a handle or think on some of the things that they've heard from your word today about eternal life and what it means to be in Christ. And Lord, that they would hope in that, that they would believe, continually believe, and be overjoyed for the eternal life they have. Be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper and as we sing and later even give. Lord, as we worship, be with us now as we do these things. Lord, I pray that you would give us focus right now as we as we think and meditate on Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. We love you, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.